Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, Stay Tuned listeners. As many of you know, Stay Tuned is going on tour. You can find all the details about our stops at cafe.com slash tour. But I'm excited to announce that we've added two new guests who will join me in Denver and Detroit. We'll be in Denver on Thursday, October 24th, where former Colorado governor, recent presidential candidate, and now candidate for Senate, John Hickenlooper, will speak with me about the current political moment. Then our previously announced guest, Shannon Watts, founder of Moms Demand Action, will impart her wisdom on gun control, fighting the NRA, and what it takes to inspire a grassroots movement. Then on Tuesday, November 12th, we'll be headed to Detroit. There, I'll be joined by my one-time colleague, former Detroit U.S. attorney, Barbara McQuaid. She'll join me on stage to talk about strains on the rule of law under Trump, congressional efforts to hold the president accountable, and the outlook for impeachment. Michigan's Attorney General Dana Nessel will speak with me about the most pressing local issues in her efforts to challenge the Trump administration's policies on climate, immigration, and health care. That's in Detroit on November 12th. Get tickets to these shows at cafe.com slash tour. And don't forget to check out our stops in Minneapolis, November 5th with Mayor Jacob Fry, and in Atlanta, December 4th, where I'll be speaking with former Acting Attorney General Sally Yates. Cafe.com slash tour. That's cafe.com slash tour. I hope to see you all there. From Cafe, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. If you are listening to this podcast, you are probably not going to become a billionaire. I just want to be really clear with people. The reality is, you can do extraordinary things for everybody in this country, pay for massive things for everybody in this country by taxing a few hundred thousand people, a small amount more that would still allow their fortunes to grow every year. What that should tell you is that group of people is hoarding an extraordinary amount of resource. That's Anand Girdardas. He's an author, a cultural critic, and a self-described flamethrower. His most recent book digs into pressing issues, money, politics, and growing global inequality. Anand joins me to talk about the return of the term plutocracy, whether elite philanthropy actually does any good, how to balance the requirements of democracy and the economy, and how institutions should handle dirty money, like sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein's donations to the MIT Media Lab. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, folks, one of my favorite things about doing these podcasts is hearing from you and answering your questions. Since we can't get to all of your questions on the podcast, 
We'll be answering some of them in our Stay Tuned newsletter. It's sent on Thursdays, and it also includes show notes and supplemental materials to the episode. So if you'd like to see your questions answered and to learn more about the topics discussed in each episode, sign up to receive the Stay Tuned newsletter. You can do so for free at cafe.com slash preet. That's cafe.com slash preet. Hi, Preet. Uh, my name is Amy. I'm from Northern California. Um, you're the man. You know what's going on in the Southern District of New York. And I'm fascinated by Trump's appointee basically putting the two Ukrainian thugs in jail. Is this like a, a huge game of chess or is it pretty straightforward and Berman is a good guy doing the right thing? Anyway, thank God for you. Uh, it's how I survived love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Amy, thanks for your question. Uh, To me, the actions and activities of the Southern District, you know, maybe because I have a parochial view, uh, but I was there for a long time, is that it is straightforward. If they see a case that they think is legitimate and righteous to bring, where they have the evidence and it complies with the law, they bring the case. So with respect to the one you're talking about, that's somewhat eyebrow raising. Igor Fruman, Lev Parnas, who are associates of Rudy Giuliani and a couple of others, they found evidence that there was campaign finance violations. And so they they brought the case. I don't know that this is chess. I don't know it's checkers, poker, or any other sport on or off the field. I think they're just doing what they're supposed to be doing. It is interesting to me that there has been speculation in the media, and there's a report online at CNN over the last few days suggesting that there was some movement at the Department of Justice to replace Jeff Berman, my successor, uh, with someone else at the Department of Justice, but that that speculation or that thinking is now stalled because to do so might look sort of political given the existence of this case against at least two Rudy Giuliani associates. So I don't know if that's true or not, but everything that I can see, uh, Jeff Berman is doing his job in the tradition of the office, which is independently, aggressively, and fairly. Speaking of Rudy Giuliani, in the last 24 hours, there was some question of whether or not he would comply with House subpoena to provide documents and provide testimony And the wait is over, and Rudy Giuliani has said that he will not. I believe his direct quote is, I will not participate in an illegitimate, unconstitutional, and baseless impeachment inquiry. He also seems to assert executive privilege, attorney-client privilege, attorney work product privilege, and everything else. So, you know, I'd have to see exactly uh, how his claims play out and how the House reacts. I imagine they will take him to court. But given Rudy Giuliani's own statements that he was not the president's lawyer at a time, sometimes he was, given the nature of what he was doing for the president when he was engaging in what seems to be, you know, gallivanting around the world, engaging in shadow foreign policy. I don't see how that's a legal representation. I don't understand on the one hand that he could be lobbying the U.S. government on behalf of Ukrainian interests at the same time saying that he was doing that at the behest of the head of the American government. There seems to be a a paradox there. And Ann Milgram and I talked about that a little bit on the Cafe Insider podcast. But the bottom line is, from where I sit, not knowing every detail, I don't see how he can assert attorney-client privilege over a lot of things, and in the same way can assert what's called attorney work product privilege for the same reasons. I don't see how executive privilege comes into play. Rudy Giuliani is not a member of the government. He's a private citizen, and so executive privilege should not apply. The only privilege that I can think of that could be appropriately invoked by Rudy Giuliani uh, to not come forward and provide documents And to provide testimony is the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. And if he invokes that, that'll be an interesting thing in light of the fact that there's reporting that his former office, my former office, the Southern District of New York, may be investigating him personally. 
So, folks, as you know, last week we had the very elusive conservative lawyer married to Kellyanne Conway, George Conway, on the podcast. Uh, it got quite a reaction. There was lots of attention to the interview uh, in newspaper articles, on cable television, and the listenership has been extraordinary. Now, for the most part, the reaction from folks on social media, calls from my family, and also text messages and emails has been fairly extraordinary. Uh, much of it has been positive. I think people largely enjoyed the interview. And we got some good reactions like this one from Nancy in California. Hi there, Preet. I think your podcast with George Conway is the best one I've ever heard on any podcast. It seems so relaxed and informative and very helpful to my peace of mind. And I thank you very, very much. But there was also, you know, a vocal minority who questioned whether or not I had the right approach in pressing George Conway largely about his relationship with and marriage to senior White House advisor Kellyanne Conway. This is an example from Graham in Philadelphia. Hi, Preet. This is Graham from Philadelphia. I absolutely love your show and also Cafe Insider with Ann Milder. Listen to both of them religiously. My question is this. Why, after being so critical of the media's lack of follow-up with certain questions, did you let George Conway off the hook so easily about his wife, Kellyanne Conway's enablement and defense of President Trump? I know he, quote-unquote, didn't want to go there, but his argument would have been so much stronger if he had answered that question. If you can share your thoughts on this matter, I'd greatly appreciate it. Again, love the show and look forward to hearing your response. So, Graham, thanks for your question. And I guess I understand where you're coming from, but, but I want to explain a couple of things. One is George Conway has made it clear that he doesn't want to talk about his relationship with his wife. He doesn't want to talk about his marriage. He made that clear to me when he decided to do this first interview in almost a year with anyone. And so I, I suppose I could have decided not to go forward with the interview, not ask him about his 11,000-word article in The Atlantic, not ask him about uh, why he has soured on the President of the United States, not ask him about his new group checks and balances, because he wasn't going to talk about his private relationship with his wife. On the question of what he thinks about what his wife does for a living, if you listen to the exchange, he's actually pretty clear about that. I asked him, in effect, if he thought that senior advisors to the president who are enabling him should resign. And he very plainly said, yes. Why not just do the right thing? Is your advice to people in his inner circle to quit? If you can't have a positive effect on him, and I don't think anybody can, yeah. And then I said, trying to broach the subject, even though I knew he wasn't going to talk about it, but giving him one opportunity, I said, well, does that mean then, clearly about to mention his wife? And he said, I'm not going to go there. And then he said, and this is the critical part, Going back to what you said a second ago about people around the president, how they should leave, at the risk of getting into a delicate area? Not going there. Okay. But I think my position is clear on To me, that means that he believes that Kellyanne Conway and the other folks who are working for President Trump based on his character and based on what he thinks is a narcissistic personality disorder should leave office. To me, that's a complete answer. Now, the question of whether or not that is a problem for him in his home life and whether or not it's a problem with him in his marriage and what the status of that relationship is, is kind of not what I do here. I'm not a marriage counselor. I'm not Oprah Winfrey. I'm a lawyer, former federal prosecutor who wanted to probe his views of the president as a lawyer and as a little bit of an armchair psychologist based on his article in The Atlantic. With respect to your point about letting people off the hook, there's a distinction, in my mind at least, between asking a question of somebody who chooses to answer the question 
but dissembles about it, or lies about it, or gives a contradictory answer about it. And then I think it behooves the question asker to ask it again, or ask it a different way, and press for an answer if it's also relevant to the enterprise of the interview. When people say, which is their right, there's a personal matter, a personal relationship that I am not going to discuss, no matter how many times you ask it, it's a waste of time and, you know, arguably insulting, in my view, for me to have gone after him to answer questions about his wife as his wife. So I understand the tremendous amount of curiosity and interest. I also understand the tremendous amount of anger people have towards advisors to the president like Kellyanne Conway. But I didn't feel that was a place where I could do something productive, given what his posture was. And I still thought it was important and interesting and helpful to hear what George Conway's views are about impeachment and about the process of impeachment and about the president's character and mental state. But as always, we can respectfully disagree. My guest this week is Anand Girdardas. He's an editor-at-large for Time Magazine, a political analyst at MSNBC, and the author of several books. His most recent, now out in paperback, is called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Anand takes a hard look at how the global elite changed the world through charity and whether those efforts are causing more harm than good. We talk about the difference between real change and fake change, why data is undermining the self-made image of America, and something near and dear to both of our hearts, name empathy. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is supported by Simply Safe. Only one in five homes have a security system, and most companies don't make it easy. That's why Simply Safe is my top choice, hands down. There's no contract, hidden fees, or fine print. And Simply Safe protects every door, window, and room with 24-7 professional monitoring for just $15 a month. They have a shelf full of awards, from CNET to the New York Times' wire cutter. Simply Safe really stands out with video verification technology. When other home security systems are triggered, police often assume it's a false alarm and the call goes to the bottom of the list, but not with Simply Safe. Using their video verification technology, they can visually confirm that the break-in is happening, allowing police to get to the scene 3.5 times faster. Finding the right home security system shouldn't have to be a stressful, complicated process. When there are so many other things to focus on, make it easy on yourself with Simply Safe. Visit simplysafe.com/preet and you'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. You've got nothing to lose. Go now to simplysafe.com/preet so they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com/preet. Stay tuned is also supported by Mac Weldon. As any lawyer knows, a good outfit starts with the basics. Mac Weldon is the premium men's essentials brand you should have in your outfit. I won't ask, but I can tell you that Mack Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable necessities like socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants you will ever wear. These aren't your regular basics. They don't just look good. They wear well, too. Comfort is something I'm always on the lookout for. You may see me on CNN in a suit, but here in the podcast studio, I'm often wearing a beloved hoodie. Mack Weldon has just the kind I like. Soft, stretchy, and comes in a range of colors. The news is stressful enough. Might as well dress for comfort. For 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code STAYTUNED. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com with the promo code STAYTUNED for 20% off your first order. 
Sir, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, I didn't say your name when I, I, I welcome you. Were you nervous to, to try to pronounce it? Well, so I want to spend some time talking about it because I've seen you on television and I've seen you at events. People have a hard time. Anand Girdardas. Preacher close. Girdardas. Girdardas. Okay. So, what do you call yourself? Anand. Growing up, I used to let people call me whatever. Anand, uh, yeah. Anand, Anand. Jerk. Giri Hardass. Gary Hardass is pretty good. I think someone called my dad that. It was like genetic. And, Gary Hardass Jr. Uh, thanks to the you know rising wokeness of American life, I have found my own courage to you know occasionally tell people you know like say my name right. Uh, I was once on an NPR or some kind of public radio show on book tour last year, and this guy just couldn't say Anand. He just couldn't say Anand. So I would say he could say the last name. No, we didn't get there. <laughs> We didn't get there, right? Right. The train was not even at that station. So he couldn't say Anand. Um, so I said, rhymes with Amand. Anand? Rhymes with Amand. Anand? I mean, just on and on, right? We're clearly not going to get there. So I got irritated and he got irritated. And I said, you know, y'all have no problem saying Dostoevsky and Tchaikovsky. And he said, maybe when you get as famous as them, I'll learn to say your name too. <laughs> so it's an open question whether or not you have the hardest last name as a guest on the show or... Mayor Pete Buttigieg. First of all, I got to say this about Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete is the only presidential candidate in American history who said my name perfectly on national television. And I just want to say... I, <laughs> How I many this, have tried? <laughs> he's also the only one who has ever tried. Like, Lincoln didn't get it right. Um, but I, I have to say, you know, if my, if my ancestors had known that, that our, our journey to America would be redeemed by the mayor of South Bend correctly pronouncing my admittedly difficult last name, um, you know. I, look, he's got name empathy. <laughs> right. I do. I, we were talking before we came on. You know, maybe it's because I have name empathy and I get my name mispronounced all the time. I take some time. Um, and maybe I won't get it right, but at least make an effort to try to figure out how to pronounce people's names. Even when I was announcing criminal charges as the U.S. attorney against people who we thought uh, would be proven guilty of serious charges, including terrorism charges, I would ask the line prosecutors for a phonetic on how to pronounce the names of people we thought were criminals. Yes. I mean, having followed your career closely, I would say one of my life goals was to never have you pronounce my name ever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with it now that it's in a podcast But I would have done it context. a little bit wrong. Yeah. Um, do you really think that people who can't pronounce a difficult name are lacking some quality? Um, the quality may be in the tongue muscles. I, you know, I don't think it's a moral issue necessarily, but here's why it becomes one. You know, I described this the other day in something as like a, a lot of people have like a John Bob mouth. They can say <laughs> things like John and Bob. Right. And frankly, this is, I think the larger issue here is the country is going through a massive transition, as we know. So much of what you're talking about on TV, what I'm talking about, what we're writing about in different ways is all downstream of this really big identity transition in American life, where a kind of mostly white and male-run country is changing into another kind of thing. And I think there's a lot of changes that go with that and behavioral changes we all need to accommodate. And one of those things, frankly, is name pronunciation. You know, my parents first came to this country, we're living in Cleveland, Ohio, when I was growing up in this country. The John Bob names were defaults, like white names were defaults, and everything else you were like lucky to be in the room and don't, don't worry how they say it. And I think part of the new America that we're all trying to clamber into uh, is an America in which there are fewer, if any, defaults. That's going to require a lot of people with John Bob mouths to, to kind of 
do some do some tongue exercises and and try to broaden their ability to say all kinds of sounds, yeah. all kinds of names. Just wait till the caravan gets here. Right. Um, <laughs> right. The John Bob mouth. I haven't heard that phrase before. And I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast. I remember when I was five years old and I was in kindergarten or first grade. And these three boys came up to me and said, you know, what's your real name? And I, I told them my name. I like, no, no, what's your, what's your real name? That can't be your real name. Right. I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, I'm Bob. This is Joe. This is Jack. This is Bill. What's your name like that? I'm like, I don't know. I better go home and find out. Yeah. I went home and asked my dad, what's my, I explained to them what happened. I said, what's my real name? And I got, um, like, Beta, we're going back to India. He's <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I give you a beautiful name, but I didn't get it because later some kids were, were mean and obnoxious, but they were just curious. They didn't understand how could you not have a name? What's so interesting and, and actually makes this an issue of significance is the language those boys used. What's your real name? Right. And I think a lot of what is happening, we look at the work of Robin DiAngelo, Ibrahim Kendi, other people writing about whiteness, white supremacy in America. We used to think white supremacy was like people in robes burning things. And there's an increasing understanding culturally that white supremacy is whiteness being the default, it is having certain types of names be thought real by really young kids who are not hateful, or, but who just think certain kinds of names are real and other people are like pretenders to the society. Um, and that's why, you know, this is my third book. I've been on tour for all three. The first two, I never said anything. And the third one, I was like, no, like actually saying something and pushing people to, to get it right is actually part of how we get to the society we need to get to. I wasn't going to spend this much time on names, but you made me think of something else. I don't begrudge people who do this. And I have lots of friends and members of my family who have done this, who have, you know, their given name, but then they anglicize it or Americanize it in some way or go by some nickname. So if your name is... Um, I got one. Mine is Andy Ghirardelli. It's like a nice chocolate. Yeah. Better than Ghirardardas. That's my Indian American Southern governor name. But, okay, so... <laughs> Nikki, you got Nikki Haley, you got Bobby Jindal. Like, yeah. if I had a name like Andy Ghirardelli, I wouldn't be here talking to you. I'd be, like, be passing a budget in the Southern state. <laughs> um, but, but do you have any problem with people deciding, you know, I'm just going to use an Americanized nickname? Wherever I don't, they're I from? Don't, it's not my choice. I don't have a problem with people doing what they need to do to navigate systems that can be painful. I was made fun of for my name. Like, I understand that it's tough and you got to do what you got to do. But I, I think the onus is not on people with unfamiliar names to, to fix it. I think the burden is on the society to be accommodating that and to understand that it's not trivial. All right, so let's talk about the book. I don't even think I've mentioned it yet, uh, which has done very well. It's well-written, thoughtful, provocative. Not everyone's going to agree with everything in the book. It was a national bestseller in the hardcover, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, and it is now out in paperback. Yes, it is. So people should go get it. Paperback, the, you know, if you don't like cardboard and you do like <laughs> saving money, it's now available in a format for you. The main thesis of the book is what? That we live in this time in which the richest and most powerful people on earth are lavishly giving back, changing the world, trying to make a difference. They're giving back money philanthropically more than has ever been given away before. Probably a lot of the people you investigated <laughs> gave away lots of money. They did. And, and, and used it maybe as a bargaining chip. Um, they do things like impact investing. We're going to invest and in ways that, you know, help solve poverty. They do social enterprises. Every young person on college campus has some scheme about how they're going to go to Rwanda and turn recycled poop into coffee and sell it in, you know, Portland or Wait, something. they're going to recycle poop into coffee? It's very complicated, Preet. And <laughs> I'm going to invest in that. Changing the world, yeah. yeah. 
you can go on and on. It, it's rare to find young people on campuses who don't want to do something idealistic for the world. And the question is, if we live in this time of extraordinary elite generosity, why is it that we also happen to live in a time of extraordinary elite hoarding? The very same class of people who does all the aforementioned good stuff is also, by the cold logic of numbers, among the most predatory elites in history, essentially monopolizing the future. 49% of new income goes to this top 1%. The point 1%, with an emphasis on point, now owns more wealth than the bottom 80% of Americans. As we know, this group of people has monopolized the access to policymakers and policy and rights rules that help it and hurt the country and hurt the planet. And so the question is, what work is the do-gooding doing, right? Is it just a drop in the bucket? If there was more of it, it could solve these problems? Or, as I became curious about, is it possible that the extraordinary elite generosity of our time is part of how we uphold a system, fundamentally, of extraordinary elite hoarding? Is the making a difference stuff how we uphold a system that fundamentally is about these people making a killing? I want to understand a couple of things. Which people are you talking about? Um, are you talking about just billionaires? Are you talking about just people who are above a certain threshold of, of wealth? Are you talking about people who've inherited their wealth and then grown it further? Are you also talking about people who, in common parlance, we say are self-made, who invented something, came from nothing, and invented something that people wanted in the world, whether it's a computer or a car or anything else? Are they all the same, or are there distinctions you make among this group of people who are fabulously wealthy? Yes and no, right? So... What I'm talking about is a kind of word that used to be in fashion and is now not in fashion, but is, but is coming back, maybe, which is plutocracy, right? Which is the rule of a class of ultra-rich people. And, and the important second half of the word plutocracy is the cressy, which is ruling, right? So it's not merely being rich, but it's being rich and ruling, and the society being ruled by wealth and by those people. And Pluto has to do with being a dwarf planet? I think Pluto is not a planet anymore. Is it a dwarf planet or does we not We will anything? get the researchers to, okay. I have no idea. So Plutocrat is not somebody who's ruling a non-planet. It's not a dog from a Disney, you know, no, uh, no it's not a dog. To clarify that. Yeah, we're going to get emails about this. Um, to your point, there is a class of people who have disproportionately monopolized the future in America, right? That's the class I'm talking about. Are there other issues with inequity, people making 200 grand a year and having better public schools than other people? Absolutely, and I talk about that too. But if you look at most of the numbers, where the real capture is taking place, where you really have people kind of standing at the, the head of the river and cornering most of the water for themselves, starts to be in that 1%, 0.1%, 0.01% area. That's where you start to see that kind of immunity. And so within that class, am I saying that everybody's the same? Of course not. Am I saying that Bill Gates is the same as some of the, you know, financial people who caused the mortgage crisis? Of course not. You're saying Bill Gates is better? Yes. Okay. Let me lay out a taxonomy. So first of all, you have in this group of elite do-gooders some people who are just outright thugs. Right, who, who's a thug? The Sackler family, okay. members of the Sackler family. And that's because who of in, their involvement in? In the opioid crisis brought to you by uh, certain members of the Sackler family that knowingly put forward a product that was, you know, frankly, killing people on what has become almost a genocidal scale, hundreds of thousands of deaths through corporate malfeasance, knowing corporate malfeasance. So you have a case like that. You have, frankly, someone like Mark Zuckerberg, who's done tremendous damage to our democracy by refusing to allow the government and others to actually investigate what's going on, trying to thwart that when we were in the middle of cyber attacks. That's not, that's not offset in any way 
by the connectivity he's given to lots and lots and lots of people in the world? I would rather live in a democracy where we have, you know, some of the older fashioned ways of being connected or, or like eight of the other apps instead. I just would prefer to live in a democracy in which he hadn't given an edge to Donald Trump by doing what he did and by being unwilling to do what he was unwilling to do. Uh, a world in which he's not spreading election violence in, you know, countries around the world through WhatsApp and so resistant to reasonable checks on his authority. So the first and kind of easy case where I think probably anybody listening to this would agree with me is when you're doing, when you've personally and through your company or whatever done tremendous social harm and then you sprinkle a little coin of do-gooding through philanthropy or whatever on frankly a smaller scale. Like that's kind of an easy, it's an important case. Epstein, you know, all these people. We can talk about that, but that's an easy case I think most people are with me. That is not the sum total of the problem. There are still people who don't meet that kind of bar of malfeasance who still trouble me. And they trouble me for a different reason, which is even if you did no harm in making your money. Right. Meaning you, you made your money honestly? Yes. You provided a good or a service that was wanted in the world? Yes. And you sweat and you toiled to make that Correct. business? You're still bad. Not just the fact that you have that money. Um, what I'm suggesting is then people who turn around, Bill Gates is, is something, you know, Bill Gates is not innocent, right? Bill Gates actually had a big antitrust issue, which may sound technical to people, but is a, an issue of whether you allow other people to breathe oxygen who want to start companies or whether you're the only one who gets the oxygen. So that's actually a, an important issue. But look, Bill Gates is not the Sacklers. He's not some of these other folks. But I believe that in a democracy, when someone like Bill Gates spends billions of dollars with his views on education or with his views on this and that, he is exerting power, a kind of power over public life that our system is expressly designed to prevent, right? What's the point? Just because of, he, he has disproportionate voice. Yes. I mean, mm -hmm. think about this, right? You, you know this as, as even, a man even, of the law. Like, even think, if he's benevolent, even, even if he's voicing his opinions in good faith for something better in the world, and he came by his money, let's use you know, the hypothetical, and he came by his money in good faith and with good behavior. In a democracy that's also capitalistic, has he not earned the right to have a larger voice? In the same way that, not the same way, but in a related way to somebody who's become a top film actor or musician is going to have 60 million Twitter followers, whereas the ordinary person will not. In some way, society has condoned those people having a larger voice, and why can't they exercise it? There are certain kinds of larger voice, like, having Twitter followers or like being able to commission art, you know, where that power is, it is what it is. What I'm talking about specifically is stuff that gets into the terrain of democracy, right? If you are pushing common core through your foundation and having multiple state legislatures vote on it without a meaningful debate as the Gates orbit did philanthropically, that to me is not just like you're famous and you have a little bit more of a voice. You are engaging right. in democratic activity and you are engaging on a scale that way exceeds your one vote. By the way, I also have a problem with people doing the same thing by giving money to politics and I right. believe we should abolish that. This has become an important route of the plutocratic element in American life exerting even more power than it already had through money in politics and through the economy. But I want to understand if your critique is more content-based on what these people decide to do or mm. the nature of the structure. So, for example, because you say, very pointedly, generosity is not a substitute for justice, which I think is hard to disagree with. So let's say there was a policy proposal that you thought was really good for the country and for the world. I don't know if this is one that you would subscribe to, but let's say 
the public school teachers in America should get twice as much salary as they get now. And then that would draw more people in. I don't know if you agree with it or not, but accept the hypothetical. Now you have someone like Bill Gates who came by his money in our hypothetical, honestly and honorably. And now he has this outsized voice. If he spent all of his time and energy pursuing this policy goal that you think would help inequality that you, Anand, agree with, would that be okay? Or is it still a problem because that man shouldn't have an outsized voice? It's a great question, uh, a question of a great prosecutor. So I have less of a problem with it. And I think that's the best case scenario for a certain kind of giving and not what most of these people do. Okay. So the reason I like it is... Well, because you like the policy. Right? No. Y- yes and no. Um, I may like a lot of different policies. What I particularly liked in that setup was A, you didn't say he's doing a $3 billion fund to pay those teachers directly to double their salary. I would like that less, even though I would like that outcome. I wouldn't like that because that's not working through democracy. If he were to work through democracy, not jam it through state legislatures, but, but actually, let's say, do political advocacy training for teachers and teachers' unions so that they became more effective in the political fights they're in and won it legitimately in the public square, I would like that even more, yeah. right? Working through respecting democratic procedures, having some impact on them, to be sure, but having that impact filtered a little bit through like actual people besides yourself being engaged in the hurly-burly of democracy. The other thing I like about it is it is traitor to your class giving. The net effect of doubling the Like pay, traitors to their class. I do. The net effect of that kind of doubling would have to be over time raising revenue, right? That's an expensive thing for the society to do. Where is that going to come from? Probably raising taxes on rich people like him. So to the extent that rich people are advocating for it, even using philanthropy, policies that would reduce the power of plutocrats in public life, I'm all for it. I think that's in some ways one of the only acceptable forms of philanthropy when it comes to this issue of inequality. More with Anand in just a moment. Stay tuned. Did you know that socks are the most requested clothing item in homeless shelters? Bombas is on a mission to change that. They created the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. And now, for every pair of socks purchased, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. In fact, Bombas has donated over 20 million pairs and counting. Designed with special comfort innovations, colors, patterns, lengths, and styles, Bombas are perfect for the whole family. I know my family loves them. Bombas are made from super soft natural cotton with arch support, a seamless toe, and a cushioned footbed. And their new merino wool socks are designed to be breathable, dry, and never itchy. Get your hands on a pair of Bombas socks and your feet will thank you. Save 20% off your first purchase when you shop at bombas.com slash preet. That's bombas.com slash preet to save 20%. Bombas.com slash preet. Now, back to my conversation with author and self-described flamethrower, Anand Giridardas. I think your question about is it the substance or is it the procedure is really important here. And, you know, you are someone who's well known as not being a big fan of Donald Trump. But I, th- I imagine if I came to you and offered you a deal where we could bring back Barack Obama, but as a king. <laughs> yeah. Right? and install him as a king under like a kingly system, I think you wouldn't take the deal. I would not. You are willing to live under drastically worse substance. But that's about the only deal I wouldn't take. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but I think no one would. And, and, I, and I think this is so important. This is the achievement of democracy, 
it, we don't care if it's a benevolent substance. The procedure matters. Yes, but we're not building society from scratch. So we have the billionaires. We have these rich people. Unless you're saying something, which I don't think you're saying, and then I don't hear people in the political process saying, they're going to deal with something very radical and bring those billionaires down to millionaire status or less. I think we should heavily tax them so that their fortunes well, look, become I mean, drastically as, as a pragmatic matter, you have Elizabeth Warren, who has a proposal for a 2% wealth tax above $50 million, which is not going to really change the world that much. And that's deemed by a lot of people, you know, very radical. So, you know, when I'm asking these questions about what you want these people to do, we're assuming that we're living in the real world where they exist. And how do we steer them in, under your theory and your approach and your vision to make society more democratic and make it more uh, just? I want to get your impression on this incident that made a lot of news. So we have uh, a rich person named Robert Smith, African-American, person of color, who did something that was applauded by everyone. He shows up to give the commencement address at Morehouse College, and he says, I'm picking up the tab for all of your college debt. And that got a standing ovation, brought tears to people's eyes. How do you view that? Is that good? It's the kind of gesture um, that has actually multiplied in a broken society. The kind of gesture that on its own is lovely. But you're not against it. Well, oh, I you're think against. It's, I you're think against it's, the free college. I'm not. I, I, I'm not against people going getting free college. I'm against the following. I'm against the fact that that class of people had such debt to begin with, because of the way we structure our society. I'm against the fact that um, Robert Smith has such a vast fortune because we have an insane tax loophole for people like him called carried interest, which he has specifically, in an article by David Gellis in the New York Times, endorsed and said we should not take away. I am against the fact that people like Robert Smith, as generous as they may be, contribute to a world through the use of their power and the opposition to, to policies like repealing carried interest that frankly doom all the other college students graduating that day and that month who did not have the benefit of his largesse. So yes, I am thrilled that some small group of, of young people got some relief. But I am mindful of the fact that millions of young people setting out into the world in the coming years will not have this relief because the same type of people, the plutocrats who have the money to do that, in the main, their main contribution to society is not wiping the debt clean from a few people. Their main contribution to society on a much greater scale is fighting for public policies that doom most young people. And the other day, you have KFC. I don't know if you saw this online. KFC makes this announcement. A woman who worked there was walking some extraordinary distance to and from work every day. You remember maybe from my True American book, that was one of the striking observations that Race made about his employee, his colleagues at the Olive Garden, these people walking long distances because they couldn't afford a car. So KFC hears about this woman and buys her a car. And KFC by me and others, starts to get dragged immediately. Like, just pay her more. <laughs> right. Right. Why, why, why does your, do you ever ask yourself, why is your employee not able to afford a car to begin with? And what happens to like all the other KFC employees? So these gestures, now you go on Donors Choose, and there are these stories of teachers, oh, I need $15 for my pencils. Is that bad? No, of course it's not bad. Is it good to give something? Right. Sure, of course. But these it's are not the, the smoke problem. signals 
of a sick and broken society. So, so what if Robert Smith, separate from and on top of giving free college to a class of folks, this is like my earlier example, he banded together with a bunch of other people who have you know, a strong political voice and donation ability and urged members of Congress to pass legislation along the lines that some people are proposing for you know, more financial aid or forgiveness of debt or free college in every state at a state school that would cost a lot of money and might result in higher taxation. Is your point that that's what they should be doing instead yes. or on top of? That's much better. It's much, much better. That's exactly what... And, and, you know, by the way, he could have spent the same amount of money maybe helping some people with debt and... I'm just making this up, but you do a thing where there's scholarships. If people go into certain kinds of careers, then they get the scholarship, right? You could do the kind of thing where you do give some debt relief to people, but you have some component of, like, you got to go into public policy and work on some of these issues if you want to qualify for it, right? Where you can actually start working through a political progress. I, I often say to people, you know, people come to my events and say, you know, so what can I do? What can I do? What's the thing I can do? The simple thing I tell people is pick the thing that angers you about your society because we all have our own set of gripes. Pick the thing that angers you and then think of a solution that has the following four qualities. It's public, democratic, institutional, and universal. Right? When so what if it's the subway? That <laughs> makes people very angry in New York. It does. Is that and a legitimate it should make one? people angry. You know, it, it's, it is maddening that in the city of New York, which is probably by most measures the greatest accumulation of wealth in the history of human civilization in one very small place, I think it would boggle the mind of alien visitors or of our own ancestors that such a city a city that could literally afford to like pave the streets in gold if it wanted to, um, just can't have a functional subway system. And then you go to all these other countries in the world. Well, have you been to the subway in Moscow? It's lovely. I have not. I have not. I, and I, it's very cheap, but I wouldn't want to live in, I'd rather live in New York than Moscow. Well, these days by living in America, you sort of are living in Moscow. <laughs> well, I'm banned from Russia also, but that's right. a separate, that's a separate issue. Congratulations on that. I mean, I, who, who's, yeah. who's the... Who's the audience for the book? Is the audience for the book the very people you're criticizing? I think they're the minor audience, not the major audience. The book over the last year has had two, two audiences that are, that are in some ways opposed to each other, but both have been drawn into a conversation, which was my hope. The main audience for the book is everybody who has casually assented to the outsourcing of changing the world to plutocrats. Because we all participate in this, and that's what's important. We all participate in this when we casually accept the notion that someone like Mark Zuckerberg is an you know, idealist who wants to connect the world. We, we casually assent to this when, as a principal of a public school, we let some you know, tech giant or some foundation completely dictate the way our teachers need to teach and some tablet they need to use. We assent to this as journalists when we cover gifts like Robert Smith's the way people used to do and frankly have changed in recent years without skepticism, without asking how the money was made. And so the biggest thing I wanted to do was to change how regular people thought about plutocracy to make plutocracy a more top of mind issue for them. So people frankly, would be more comfortable taking power back. And frankly, with that audience, the big bulk of the audience, the biggest thing I want people to do is to kind of think about and be able to better discern, having read the book, real change versus fake change and the peddlers of real change versus fake change. I think if you don't have this lens, I can imagine you looking at the Democratic primary candidates and thinking, you know what, they're all pretty similar. They're all talking about 
fairly similar things. They all want people to have health insurance, et cetera. My hope is this book is a set of infrared lenses that when you put those on, you realize, whoa, Joe Biden's attitude to what to do about plutocracy in America is fundamentally diametrically different than Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. Is there a big difference in your mind since you brought up politics, a difference between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren? I think there is a difference of of the kind of democratic socialist tradition in this country, of a, of a certain tradition and around the world, frankly, of organizing of a culture that is inherently in its mind outside of a kind of normal two-party process. And so there's a lot of that energy in his campaign that I think is powerful. It can also be sometimes toxic. You know, I think no, toxic one, no one's followers on Twitter are more <laughs> lethal than Have his. Have you ever criticized Bernie Sanders on Twitter? I've criticized everybody right. one way or another. I mean, I wrote an 8,000-word piece about him for Time Magazine cover piece in June. And I think, you know, I mean, the, the hilarious experience was I started getting all these private messages from the top people in his campaign. It was a piece that said Bernie Sanders needs to change if he's going to win, right? So it was, it, it was not a hit job. It was also not, you know, uh, a puff piece. It, I started getting these private messages from people at the top of his campaign saying it's one of the most thoughtful things ever written about him. You really you got the essence of him. I've known him 25 years. You went... Meanwhile, I'm getting dragged online by all of his supporters being like, how are you, you know, like, how are you talking about him this way? So, you know, I, I, but, I, but I get where that comes from. That's what I mean by the difference. I think he comes out of a democratic socialist tradition that in some ways is just outside of the American uh, two-party political process and has a certain energy and anger and passion around that that is both a strength and a weakness, potentially. I don't know how pragmatic you are, actually. I was going to say you're a pretty pragmatic guy. On all issues of change, particularly the kinds of issues that you are writing about, and I think you're know, fairly effectively making a particular point. And I've seen you do it in lots of forums where not everyone is agreeing with you and not everyone is welcoming your message. There's a debate now generally on whether we should proceed incrementally or more radically. What's your view on these issues? In order to have change actually work, how fast or how slow? I, I find the framing of um, incremental versus more sweeping or radical versus not unhelpful for the following reason. I think what we're actually talking about here is how to undo something radical that happened over the last 40 years, not about how to do something radical, right? You mean make America great again? Uh, that's not what I said. Um, <laughs> you know, over the last 40 years... You want to years, go back to something that we had 40 years ago, which is an interesting But a, di but a different it. thing, a, a different thing. Um, 40 years ago, a lot of people look at 1979 as kind of the, the date where the data started to change, 1980, the coming of Reagan you had a real takeover of the kind of neoliberal, plutocratic, market fundamentalist ideology in American life. Um, that meant, you know, for regular people, your taxes were cut, maybe. Uh, you know, you started to have government spending slashed. You started to hear a rhetoric of government is bad, government is bad, government is bad, right? You were serving in government for many of those years when, like, what you did was denigrated as, in and of itself, just leachy and bad. And... That was a very successful, and I have to say, quite radical idea, because this country began as a republic, the constitution, you know, with the constitution of a government. That's actually what constitution means, right? This, this society started by creating a government to do stuff for us. And the idea that people running it, and the entire leadership structure, certainly on the right, but it started to infect the left, absorbed this idea that the, that 
that government it's, it's itself is a sort of evil enterprise is such a profoundly radical thought that became so normal and normalized that I reject the notion that Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren saying everybody should have health care and it would be cheaper and more efficient and more just if the government paid all those bills to all the existing doctors and whatever that are already out there. I reject the idea that's radical. A, because it's in place in virtually every other country that's rich. And B, because it is attempting to unwind a profoundly radical and un-American tradition that has you know, draped itself falsely in the flag. There is nothing patriotic about this country being run for a few hundred thousand people. If I'm understanding you correctly, if you're talking about undoing this notion that government does too much and government should do less, I'm not an expert in history, but I know some. Isn't it true that the Republic began with government doing very little? Government didn't even provide education. Sure. And that, in fact, it took a lot of time for the idea to take hold that government needs to do all yes. these other things. So it depends on how much unwinding you're talking about, going back 40 Completely. years or going back 200 Completely. years. Completely. But, but, but here's the thing, uh, you know, and this is a very important point. I think throughout history, you, know, the, you can ask a philosophical question about how active government should be. And I think one way to think about it is to the extent that you build an ever more complex society where people are constantly being acted on by forces way too big for them to control, you need public power commensurate with those forces, right? So in the horse and buggy days, yeah, you didn't have an SEC, but you also didn't have, you know, the mechanisms for people to like lose all their fortunes in some like, you know, massive thing that would, that would lead to a global meltdown because you didn't have all that connectivity. Right. But right? you still needed, you know, going back to my education example, that remains the same, you know, the, the need for a basic education so people could, you know, rise up and be mobile in society. But that, that was a new true. idea. A lot of people, farmers who didn't believe that that was an idea we had to invent, right? The whole idea of Republican motherhood and educate. Like, these are all concepts we've had to fight for. They didn't, they didn't just start. Part of the reason that there's not as much anger as a Martian might expect to see if they came to the United States is that they're for good or ill, and I wonder what you think about this, there is this innate belief on the part of Americans, which I think is ultimately a good thing, but maybe it's overstated. I can become a billionaire too. I can become president of the United States. Um, maybe I can't play for the Yankees because I can't throw a ball very well. But if I work hard and I'm, I'm lucky a little bit and I have ingenuity, I can become Tim right. Apple too. Let me, I, I think this is so important and, and I'm going to disagree with you on this. I, I, I think this is a widespread belief. I agree with that. That is not a good belief. It's a healthy yeah, belief. So it's an unhealthy belief. Yeah. If you are listening to this podcast, you are probably not going to become a billionaire. Not just because you're listening to this podcast, but because you're probably not going to become a billionaire regardless because of who you are. Are you saying because they're, they're wasting their time? That was not what I was implying podcast. at all. And, and it is a sign. It's self-screening. It's a sign that they, they don't have enough good time management skills that they can't possibly make a billion dollars. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that angle. I just kind of <laughs> meant that most people are probably not going to become one. I make everything about myself, so I that's know, how I took that's it. That's fair. No, but look. The, the reality is, I just want to be really clear with people. There are, if you look at, and this is just one example, you look at the Warren Wealth text you talked about, you're right. It's not even, it's not as thoroughgoing as Bernie's in a certain sense. It actually doesn't, it probably wouldn't reduce fortunes. It would slow the growth of fortunes, right? Um, even so, it would raise extraordinary amounts of revenue 
to fund universal preschool, free college, things like that, from a very small number of people, tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of families, right? I forget the number in that case. Now, think about that for a second. You can do extraordinary things for everybody in this country, pay for massive things for everybody in this country by taxing tens of thousands or a few hundred thousand people, a thousandth of our society, let's say, um, a small amount more that would still allow their fortunes to grow every year. That, what that should tell you is that group of people is hoarding an extraordinary amount of resource. Right, but what you're saying and, is it's, it's a fool's errand on the part of lots of people who don't have a lot of money to be hopeful that they can join the ranks of people with a lot of money. Yes. And, and, and their hope is misplaced and, the data, and, and, and the it data, should be taken away from them. And, and the data is very, very clear. The, in fact, so, so this belief that you, that you cite is, is most pronounced in America, as you know. Right, but you agree that the belief is there. It's, it's absolutely there. Right. I, I remember, I mean, David Brooks, I think, talked about this a long time ago. 19% of Americans believe they're in the top 1%. Yeah. Think about that for a second. Um, so, and, and the same kind of phenomenon of people right. expecting but, to get but rich. Do, but do, isn't it true, though, that, and I get it, I get what the odds are. Look, people play the lottery in America, and maybe they shouldn't play the lottery. Lots of people think, well, I can win this lottery. I also think lotteries are very problematic. Well, I'm sure you, I'm not, I'm not surprised that you think that. But it is true, and maybe it's not good overall. And if you could, if you could change people's psychology, the way I think about it, living in the real world and understanding people's real psychologies, you have to take people's nature as you find them, unless you can change it over time, and maybe you think that you can. Not everyone thinks they're going to become a billionaire, and they can you know, aspire to that. Bruno Mars, don't tell anybody to listen to Bruno Mars. They had a hit song called I Want to Be a Billionaire, right? And it would be odd if people thought that was not a thing that you could aspire to. But, but some people do think they can improve their lot. And even at the end of the day, they think, well, maybe I can be a billionaire like Donald Trump. At least I can become a millionaire. Yes. Is let, that let so me, bad? Let, let me do, yes, here's why. Because it really messes up the coalitions politically, okay? So let me explain this in a simple way. If you have, imagine, let's say, trust my numbers, I'm making this up. You got a million people. <laughs> you, that's, that's my favorite, my, my favorite phrase. Yes. Trust, Trust my, my numbers, numbers. I'm, I'm making, making it up. up. Yeah. Uh, memoir of the Bush administration. <laughs> um, so you got a million people, let's say, who have rigged public policy, tax policy, et cetera, regulatory policy to monopolize the fruits of progress, right? Th these are the people, most new incomes going to them, most new wealth is going to them, et cetera. You got this million people over here. And then you got, you know, 300 and some other million people who are not benefiting from that. If that is the full story, when you enter the political arena and people are coming in saying, if we can just tax this million group more and do X, Y, Z, we can do so much for you. That's gonna happen. What prevents that from happening? When you start to have 100 million out of that 300 million, think somehow through magical thinking, frankly, that they're gonna become that million against all evidence and data. What that does is now, you got 200 million people on one side against 101 million people, but the 101 million people have all the money and all the lobbyists and all the power, and suddenly you take a fight that should not have been a fair fight, and suddenly the 1 million people are beating the 300 million people because they've poached like a certain significant fraction of them with the ruse, the cultural ruse, that they're all about to be billionaires. I get that. I, I don't... I comprehend what you're saying, but I wonder in practice what that means. So for example, I'll give you something. I haven't done the research, but trust my numbers because this I know is true. It is much, much easier in the United States of America based on the numbers to go from poverty to becoming a billionaire, right? Than to becoming president of the United States, right? 
There have only been 40 some odd presidents of the United States. There are hundreds and hundreds of billionaires, some who came from money and some who did not. And maybe this is also foolish, but we do tell our kids in America that this thing that's harder than becoming a billionaire, you can do it because that's what America is about. If you work hard and you study and you care about service, you can work your way up and you can right. be the president of the United States. Is that crap that we're telling our kids too? And how do you distinguish those two things? It may be an unfair question, but I, I wonder what we're supposed to be telling our kids. You say, look, you can have a big house like that too. You can be as rich as that guy. You can be president of the United States. What are we supposed to be saying to people about their ambition, even though the system is rigged? I think you can tell your kids to, first of all, be kind to other people in whatever they do. Um, and to carry that into the work they do, to do work that is important. Sure, you can tell your kids to start a company and hopefully have that company be successful among the spectrum of things they can do. But what I'm talking about is something different. When large numbers of people who will never be billionaires acquire the belief that they will, they vote against themselves, right? And I actually do think one of the reasons I write a book and write books is I actually do think people's psychology is malleable over time. I do think people are way madder at plutocracy today than they were five years ago or 10 years ago. I do think Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders would not have had a shot a decade ago in the way that they have very real chances now. I think things do change all the time. Culture changes, values change. And I think a lot of the intellectual groundwork that people have been laying has created a moment in which we could end up with a campaign in 2020 in which both candidates, let's imagine it's Elizabeth Warren and, and Donald Trump, both candidates in profoundly different ways ran against at various points a rigged system, the idea that the American dream doesn't work for people anymore, right? That was, there was a two-party consensus that sounded very different 10 years ago. Um, so I actually think we are in, a, in a, getting to a better place where we are understanding that our self-image as Americans, that this is a place where you can work hard and, you know, and I grew up with an Indian immigrant family that told this story to ourselves a lot. Yeah, me too. The problem is the data doesn't bear it out. Maybe it works for our families, a handful of our families. By the way, like half of people from India in New York are not in good shape and living at or near poverty, according to some data I saw. So, so even those stories are not as true as we, we may think. But more importantly, when you look at the question, how effectively do parents' income predict kids' income, right? Which is the greatest indicator of actual social mobility. America is like number one among the rich countries. In other words, income is most hereditary in America. And what do we think? We think it's the least. We think we've built the country where who your you know, parents were has the least effect and it has the most. That psychological disconnect among humans is true in all sorts of categories. People mm -hmm. think their judgment is better than it is. People think they're more moral than they are. People think they're smarter than they are, you know, all sorts of things. I'm with uh, Justice Brandeis, who said you can either have, you know, democracy or, or wealth and power in the hands of a few, you can't have both. I just think that's true. I don't think, a, and look, people listening to this podcast may think I am crazy. I don't think a size and scale of Jeff Bezos's fortune is compatible fundamentally with a one-person, one-vote democracy. I think the idea that you had people dying in this country so one person could vote right. next to another person, and then you don't worry about the fact that someone's got like 300 gazillion votes over here through all the power they're able to have on society that way. It makes no sense. I, I get the point. I'm not sure how far it goes. Is there some way other than taxation? So let's say Jeff Bezos, for example, who didn't have a lot of money. And let's also assume that he didn't cheat. 
and he made his money, you know, honorably. Should we assume that his workers didn't pee in a bottle? No, no, maybe not. You can assume that, that, that he engaged in, for, for the purpose of the hypothetical, uh, all sorts of ways to get to greater wealth earlier. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's so. But is there some other way other than based on the engine that was created by Amazon and the outsized success that was created? And by the way, we're, just, we're talking about one guy who's, the, I think, the richest person in the world. Before he got to the point where he had the most money of any human being on earth, some policy other than taxation could have prevented it or, or not. And Correct. What would that have been? So there's, that, that's what I'm saying. There's a, there's a whole suite of this stuff. So wealth tax is at the end of the journey, right? That's post, it's kind of redistribution right. after, right? There's also pre-distribution. Um, so a minimum wage is pre-distribution. What should be the minimum wage? Um, I think, you know, the 15 thing an hour is, is frankly, a no-brainer. I mean, I actually think as soon as we do that, we're going to need to talk about 20 or 25 in the matter of years because it's just... If you look at what's happened to costs in this country in terms of housing, healthcare, this and that, um, my sense is we're not, we're going to be back where we started with fifteen. But do, do, do you think fifteen dollars? You know, I had, I think it was Michael Bennett on running for president on the Democratic side, who said he generally supports fifteen dollars an hour, but he understands the arguments of some people, economists and others, that in certain industries and in certain geographical areas, that would that would actually hurt the folks who would be required to be paid $15 an yes. hour. Do you, do you take into consideration those economists' arguments about the minimum wage? First of all, those are very overblown, right? I mean, when, when, when you know, it, it's interesting that all the people blocking the wealth, like opposing the wealth tax, like happen to be super rich. Interesting that all the people who are opposing minimum wage increases, like happen to have a lot of their profit come from not paying higher wages. So like, let's take a lot of that with a grain of very fancy fleur de sel. Um, that said... That was a very elite term. It, it was. I was, <laughs> I was trying to embody the point. Since you don't go to the Hamptons anymore, you don't, right, have, you exactly. don't have to use those phrases. Exactly. We get it from Fresh Direct. It's good for finishing dishes. Um, <laughs> and, you know, my guess is that something like $15 minimum wage um, probably would have that consequence in some cases. And that's also what public policy is for. So if we decide as a society that no one should live under that... I would be fine with some of that, in certain cases, being subsidized by the government. You could easily have tax credits for if you hire an additional person, and in your area, the market wage is kind of closer to 10, and you're really being driven underground by that extra five, the government can give you a $5 an hour tax break. It's, that's the whole point of public policy, right? If things are properly resolved by a market, great, and I think that would largely happen. Um, but, you know, if they're not, we can step in and we can subsidize that. That's not, a, that's not a big problem. The reality is, if you look at most of the people, look at the lists of companies, lobbying groups that oppose this, none of them are what you're describing. They're all extremely you know, lucrative, uh, lucratively invested, uh, kind of lavishly compensated CEOs who, who are you know, just, they're rich because they're good at keeping money and they don't want to pay higher wages. You know, the other thing is you have to look at workplace regulation. All these things that would, as you say, limit a Jeff Bezos-like fortune from ever developing in the first place at that scale. And then in terms of taxing capital gains more, taxing wealth, you deal with some of what you, what you missed. Should, he, should Jeff Bezos you know, not be richer than someone who didn't invent Amazon? No, I don't think anybody's saying that. I don't think Bernie Sanders is saying that. I don't think the DSA is saying You're that. You're saying that there's a limit. There's a limit. And there's a limit 
when, and the limit is not a quantitative limit. The limit is when someone like that has enough power to turn the society into a machine that works for them and a machine that grinds other people to help keep them make even more and more money. It's not a society that actually conforms to any of our values. Should capital gains be taxed at the same rate as income? Um, yes. And as with income, you can do that differentially based on how much capital we're talking about. And, and you don't buy the view of economists who will say that at some point a higher capital gains tax is going to hurt investment and investment in small businesses, not just big businesses, but investment in small businesses allows for employment of people and better quality of life for, for all folks. Again, this is why you have to think about how you do it. So I don't know the blanket rate, what the rate should be. I think if that's a concern and that's a concern that's borne out by the social science on that, then yes, you should figure out, you know, if you have less than $20 million in your bank account, you can have a different capital gains tax than if you don't. We can do all that. We do all that stuff all the time. Like people talk about these concerns as though there's no possible way we can work around them. You're raising- there's not, there's not an infinite number of possibilities. That There's a spectrum. Right, and- I think with a lot of this stuff, what is true, what is inarguable is the data of what rose and what didn't over the last 40 years. Corporate profits have been fine. So the idea that everybody's so worried about what if we do something that hurts those, right? They've been fine, but wages have stagnated. Um, life expectancy, as you know, has gone down in this country in recent years. Like, do you know how hard you have to work to rig a society? for life expectancy to go down in a country with most of the best medical schools, with extraordinary doctors and nurses. Like, you have to rig society to an extraordinary Herculean level to achieve that kind of drop in life expectancy. The only, the last time it happened in this country, I believe, was during the HIV um, epidemic, the plague in the early, you know, late 80s, early 90s. And so, I think what people like me are talking about is not some wild, wacky agenda, but simply saying the answer to a winners-take-all world is a world in which the winners take less and are forced to take less because they're not going to do this on their own. The subtitle of your book includes the phrase elite charade. And in some ways, you've been part of the elite. You worked at McKinsey. You've gone to fancy brand-name schools. You used to go to the Hamptons until you stopped being um, welcome, welcome there. Did something happen? to cause you to want to write this particular book and make these particular points, other than just sort of general evolution in your thinking, but was there, a, was there a triggering event? I think there was two things. First, you know, I, I always say every book that I report and write leaves a hangover, like an intellectual hangover. The True American, um, which you've been so nice about. My second book was about this hate crime in Texas and the story of murder and redemption, mercy. And it took me to, just the reporting took me to parts of this country that shocked me. And these were not, you know, urban communities that we hear about on the news. These were not inner cities. These were not black and brown people. These were not um, the kinds of communities that we are told in our media are supposed to be failing. These were white exurbs, sort of solidly middle-class type homes that you saw, where an entire generation of people in their 30s and 40s was sort of absent because they were all on meth or in prison or dealing with various complications of dead-end lives where children were coming into the world, you know, with various drug issues, where, um, you know, the guy I wrote about in the book, Mark Stroman, his entire circle of men that he kind of grew up with, I found a list of some of his childhood friends that he ran with when he was a kid, and I just looked up all their names like 20 years later and virtually all of them had criminal records. Um, 
And I, it was just a very radicalizing experience about the level, the scale of entropy, um, not just inequality, although inequality is a big part of it, not just what China has done to manufacturing, and you know, that's a part of it. But it just made me realize what the data was already telling us, which is that there was just this total evisceration of the American dream ongoing in our, in our lifetimes. And it kind of radicalized me about that. From that hangover was born this new book? Yes. But the twist was, whenever people write about inequality and poverty, they always write about poor people. They always write about people involved. They go live in the slum, which I admire. They go live in the Bronx and write about people. You know, and that's we, some of our best literature, some of the pioneers of my field of narrative nonfiction. That's what they did. But writing about poor people as a way to understand inequality is like going to a building and interviewing the person who happens to be standing in the lobby to understand the architecture. Poor people did not invent the structures that make them poor. And so I thought, what if we did a book where you actually investigate how this works by talking to the rich people, talking to the people who are the architects of this system? Um, and, and the final thing was when I got invited into this Aspen Institute Fellowship in 2011 and was invited into this group of people, mostly business people, but a lot of business people in a room is obviously very boring. So they would always put like two or three non-business people to every class, activist, a poet, someone like that. I was in this group and we were supposed to talk about how to change the world, how to make it better. And it occurred to me that a lot of these business people flying into Aspen to talk about how to make the world better had just flown in from places where they were making the world worse. I began to realize that this whole rhetoric of elites changing the world, plutocrats changing the world, was a big part of how we got to the world that I had seen in Texas and elsewhere in this country. And that it was important to tell a new story about how we can take change back from these people. How provocative were you intending to be in the book? Very. This is, this is, this is the book, this is the edited book. So, so This is the book with, you know, the deleted chapters deleted. This is the book. Because you wanted some people to buy it. I, I think they would have, I would have sold way more copies with that stuff in it. I just couldn't get through my wife and my editor at Knopf. Um, so were you offended by this review in the Times that, that describes the book in part as gently and politely skewering corporate titans and that you as the author were careful not to offend? Are you annoyed by that? Um, I'm not. I mean, I, like, I, I, disagree, I disagree with it. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised by it. I mean, this book has caused, you know, many plutocrats to reach out to me or just snarl online about how offensive it is to them. So, um, Which means you're getting through. But, but I will say, the thing I never expected with this book was that so many of the people who, and I'm not just talking about billionaires themselves, I'm talking about people who work for big tech companies. I'm talking about people who you know, help give away the money of these people. I'm talking about people in nonprofits who raise money. I can't tell you the number of people who reach out to me from these spaces and say, you know, you are saying what is the secret chatter of these arenas we're in. And no one can say it because they're all paid by these people. We They work for these people. These people have all this power. And I have started to collect the most amazing stories from people. People DM me the weirdest things, gonna, photos from inside publish, warehouses. And, you know, are you going to publish that? I publish them when I get permission. Right. But more importantly, it's given me a portrait of how these places actually work, how Mark Zuckerberg actually behaves in his foundation. You know, these people, I, I, I got eyes on all of them. So Jeffrey Epstein, who is now deceased, while his criminal case was pending for uh, a lot of different counts of sexual misconduct, it has been coming to light over recent weeks that he did a lot of charitable giving. He's one of these people who may have been a billionaire, probably was a billionaire. 
And among the charitable giving that he that he engaged in was to various institutions of higher learning, including MIT. And there's a lot of controversy about the MIT Media Lab. So they took this money. Some consequences may befall the leadership at MIT, maybe not. The person who's head of the Media Lab had to resign with a big cloud. Once the university has taken this money, now what should happen to it? Well, first of all, the university should not have taken that money. Got it. But my, my first question was, now we're living in the world in which they did. And look, this happens with politicians sometimes. Second of all, money like that should be returned, right? And it should be returned not to the person, but should be returned as reparations. If but to whom? Well, you'd have to figure out a process for that. It's very complicated, but you'd have to do it. The same way you have to do with racial reparations, what Georgetown did with slavery, et cetera. You have to create a process. So, so if there's money given to the university, and it's money that came from someone who victimized Yes. A, a lot of people, the money should go back to the people who were victimized. And, and there's, a, there's a philosophy behind it. So you know, this is a very obvious example that I think we should translate to the less obvious case. If I steal a painting from your house and give it away to my friend, uh, my friend is innocent of this, may not have known anything about it. But correct me if I'm wrong, he still has to return the painting if we find out. Correct. Right? Even if like, he did some yard work for me and the painting was like too bad. Stolen painting is a stolen painting. Uh, so I think we need to apply that principle to a lot of the resources that are given to these universities. And so the practical thing, the philosopher Chiara Cordelli at the University of Chicago talks about this, you know, it's about who has claims on resources. So if Jeffrey Epstein has the amount of victims he does, surely there are women whose lives were damaged. I mean, forget just psychological trauma, medical bills, therapist bills, any number of other things costs, tangible and intangible, associated with uh, being abused by a predator like that. How there are claims uh, on resources that I think become equivalent to the stolen painting that is now sitting at Harvard or MIT. And just because he chose to give away that money there, I don't think gives them a kind of preemptive claim over the the money. I think those women have a preemptive claim over the money. I have suggested that Harvard, uh, and I would add MIT to this, open its healthcare and mental health care system to any victim of Epstein um, who needs and would benefit from that care for free. Um, neither, has, neither has taken me up on it. So let's change the hypothetical to something that happens every day. And I went to Harvard. I went to an elite institution. You went to Harvard for a bit, right? Dropped out. Um, congratulations. That's why you have the podcast and I'm just a guest <laughs> on the podcast. You know? That's why you have three books and I barely was able to write one. Um, so we've been talking about the ways in which people who have a lot of money, billionaires and, and approximate billionaires, how they spend their money and what's the most effective way to use it to fix some of the problems in society. And it's an easier question about what a university should do with, with money that comes from somebody like Jeffrey Epstein, who was a monster to a lot of people. Should universities be taking large amounts of money from wealthy people who don't have that history of criminal activity, or should they be making some kind of statement about not taking that money because that money can go to better purposes? It's a great it's a great point. I forget the number. I wish I had it in front of me, but if you look at the percentage of all giving to education that goes to Harvard specifically, it'll make your blood curdle. Um it's an extraordinary number. You know, a lot of that educational giving is like old men nostalgic for the place they had their, you yeah. know, first kiss. And that that's deciding which institutions have money. Um, yeah, but so the, should the universities be rejecting that? Because it's not going to happen in the real world, no, but how should but they be is, thinking this about is it? Policy. But, but I think to go to your deeper question, I think there's some money that just should not be taken at all, right? But there is this 
area where uh, the heir to the Walmart fortune is a little different from Jeffrey Epstein, right? I think most people would say, yeah, like you got an heir to the Walmart. Yes, they underpaid workers. Yes, this and that. Yes. But like, I think most people would say, take the money. The question then is, how do you structure the taking of the money to do the following things? To limit the increase of plutocratic power. So how do you take the money in a way, but do not say, now you can come into this lab or that lab and shape what we do and veto what we don't do? Um, how do you not put names on buildings? I still think, in part, as revealed by the Epstein case, you actually don't necessarily want to do anonymity. Why not names on buildings? Well, two reasons. First Small the, price to pay for you know a gift of $500 million I, I, that, that let's say they would distribute to people who otherwise couldn't afford to go to the college. First of all, you and me are paying, in many cases, half the bill for that name being on the building. They get a tax deduction, as you know. So I'm a little puzzled. Like, why only their name? Right. Well, then, well now you've raised a broader question. It's, it's, I mean, it's, you, it's you actually keep giving me more questions David to ask Koch you. David um, and the people of the United States. Should, How come the people of the United States never get named? Well, should, there, should there be a tax deduction for charitable giving at all? Um, I am dubious about it, but I, my guess is getting rid of it entirely would probably have some disastrous yeah. effects on certain things. I don't think that would be a popular things. view. But, but, but here's what I suggest. There are some smart people who advocate that. Here, here's what I suggest. I think you should make it conditional on how public-spirited the gift is. I think many people listening to this may not realize that the government of the United States raises tens of billions of dollars in extra revenue every year from you, from people like you, to subsidize big philanthropic giving and, well, frankly, all charitable giving. And so when you give a billion dollars, um, you may get back four or five hundred million of that as a tax benefit, which means you, the taxpayer, are paying into that four or five hundred million. So I think if we're going to pay into that, we should make sure we're getting value. The, the whole concept of it is, in a way, that they are doing something that is of public benefit so the public doesn't have to do that work. So the public's like saving money in theory, so the public should subsidize that. That's the idea, right? Otherwise, why would you do that? So let's actually make sure that it's public-spirited. So a couple things would make it public-spirited. One, if you're putting your name on it, in my view, you're not giving, you're, you're purchasing reputation. You're doing both. Totally fine. Maybe you're doing both. But you're, you're purchasing something of value. Your name on a building in a city like this, the Lincoln Center, that's a valuable thing to have. Yeah. I mean, a lot of charitable giving is done not anonymously. And, you know, you become known as someone who gives to a particular cause, even if you do nothing other than tweet about it. Look, there's also arguably, you know, good ancillary benefits to that because you're signaling to other people, you know, this is a good cause. I support it. You should support it. But you, if you but, can give $10, but, but right, it's think, not all bad. But at the heart of my book is the idea that another thing is also going on while those things are going on, which is when you put the name Coke, David Coke, on the ballet or whatever. Yes, you are, you, all the effects you talked about, it, you're signaling to some people to donate, this and that. But you are also helping to launder the reputation of someone who deserves way more skepticism, um, who deserves, frankly, you know, the fact that, that the Cokes um, were so generous to the arts in these like liberal urban cities was very smart because it, what it did was it defanged a certain strata of a very influential liberal right. democratic elite. And I have been, I mean, I was literally booted out of a dinner in my own honor by a bunch of rich donors raising money for Penn America because this very good rich Democrat next to me was like, well, 
don't say anything bad about David Koch. I mean, yes, yes, the Koch brothers are terrible and they've ruined the environment and they've rigged public policy to their benefit. But, you know, I'm on the board with him of this nonprofit and, you know, he's my friend. I don't disagree with you. That kind of thing happens in lots of contexts. They're not just about rich people. This hesitancy to uh, unduly attack publicly a benefactor does not only happen in these rich enclaves. Of course, but I think all these things happen to varying degrees. And, and by the way, I mean, just given your legal background, you know, I think an interesting thing that I've noticed of late in this in this question of taking money is I've seen this now enter um, judges' decisions um, in ways that are very interesting. So, like in in the Michael Cohen sentencing in SDNY. He cited his charitable giving. Oh, this is a big to his issue. kids' private school as a justification for leniency, and the judge had one of the most memorable takedowns. I mean, the judge said, "If you are co- convicted of tax fraud, and then you're using the fact that you did charitable giving to a private school, you are basically asking for mercy for stealing the public's money and then donating it to a private institution that exacerbates." The issue um, you had in in New York State court when when uh, Tish James, the Attorney General of the state, um, put forward her complaint against the Sacklers and various other people in the opioid crisis. She explicitly said they used arts philanthropy and other philanthropy to distract New Yorkers, create a smokescreen to that to to kind of distract people from the machine that allowed them to kill New Yorkers. Right. So I think more yeah. and more, even in the law, there is a recognition that. A lot of this do-gooding stuff, while good, is part and parcel of how a great amount of harm is done directly and indirectly. Look, and maybe there's trade-offs. You've thought about all these issues that we talk about in the podcast a lot, and, um, and we've talked about them throughout the show, but I'm wondering if, if I had to put you to it and ask you, how, and ask you what your working definition of justice is, what would it be? Everyone flinches. Everyone flinches when I ask that yeah, question. Well, particularly answering it from you. I mean, I, I think... The, the definition that I've always loved is centered on the idea of human flourishing, um, a society that lets people flourish. And flourishing is health. Flourishing is the right to learn and educate yourself, to be you know, basically secure from the vicissitudes of life, um, to pursue your talents. And right now, if that's the definition... Um, I think we have a lot of wealth in this country. We have money in this com- country. We have a lot of great companies. We have a lot of great innovations. We have a lot of good stuff. But I think we're not doing well on the score of, of, of human flourishing. The book is Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Anand Gedardas. There you go. Thanks for coming. Thanks for taking extra time with us Absolutely. Today. Thanks. So fun to talk to you. It's in paperback. Get it now. My conversation continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. In this week's Stay Tuned bonus, I talk more with Anand Girdardas about pronunciation and his idea of the model plutocrat. To listen to the Stay Tuned bonus and the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast, you can try out the Cafe Insider membership free for two weeks. Just head to cafe.com slash insider. So last night was the most recent Democratic presidential debate. I missed a bit of it because I was giving a talk up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but I caught a couple of hours. Uh, people have their favorites. I'm not going to tell you mine. But one question got a lot of attention in the aftermath, 
I think it was the last or one of the last questions asked. And it arose from this controversy that I don't quite fully understand why it was a controversy relating to Ellen DeGeneres, TV personality, and her supposed friendship with former President George W. Bush, with whom she disagrees on a lot of things. We have time for one more question that we would like all of you to weigh in on. Last week, Ellen DeGeneres was criticized after she and former President George W. Bush were seen laughing together at a football game. Ellen defended their friendship, saying we're all different, and I think that we've forgotten that that's okay, that we're all different. So in that spirit, we'd like you to tell us about a friendship that you've had that would surprise us, what impact it's had on you and your beliefs. Now, look, I don't know, given the limited nature of the debate and all the pressing issues that are going on in the world, and the fact that there was no question on climate change, I think, during the entire three-hour spectacle that was last night, whether that was a good question, whether it was a probing question, whether the answers people gave were canned or not canned, I leave it to other people to judge that. But what I do think is it's not a bad issue to discuss because I do think it's important for people to have relationships with folks who are not in total alignment with their own. I think it's one of, one of the big problems we have in the country, that people shut out other people's views. And by the way, there are things in life that are not just politics, and you can share uh, music and friendship and sports and culture and all sorts of other things with people maybe you don't agree with on politics. And if the only friendships you can have are those where you and someone else are totally aligned, it's not a great thing. It's not a great thing for you for enriching yourself. And it's also not a great thing for the country because nothing gets accomplished unless there can be some bond between people who may really, really radically disagree on some things. Sounds like a cliche, but I believe this strongly. You got to find common ground. And there are all the famous stories of Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, Ted Kennedy and John McCain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Friendship does matter. Since this is not a debate, but a podcast, I thought maybe I'd give you my answer. What friendship have you had that would surprise us? And what impact has it had on you and your beliefs? When I began as a staffer in the Senate Judiciary Committee back in 2005, I was going out to lunch in the first week or two of my time there. And another Democratic staffer uh, was walking out with me. And I had just come from my job as a prosecutor in the Southern District. And she looks at me for a second and she says, you know, I heard, I heard a terrible rumor. And I look at her and I said, what's that? She said, I heard a rumor that you're friends with someone named Viet Din. And I said, oh, well, that's completely false. In fact, Viet Dinh is my best friend, and I was best man at his wedding. Now, the name may or may not be familiar to you, but he's familiar in Washington, D.C. circles because he is a pretty conservative guy, Vietnamese refugee, who moved to Orange County, California, and was my classmate when we were in college at Harvard. He is a consistent Republican. He was a top advisor to Republican Attorney General John Ashcroft during the Bush administration. He is one of the authors of the Patriot Act, and at the moment... Viet is a very high-ranking official executive with the Fox Corporation, which owns and operates Fox News Channel. Now, you may imagine that Viet and I have a lot of disagreements about policy, about politics, about ideology, about judges, and also about journalism in the modern era. But that doesn't change the fact that he was my closest friend in college. I met him on the first day of classes. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met, one of the hardest-working people I ever met. He's been a good friend to me and to my family, and I've gotten to know him and I've learned a lot. And depending on whether it's an election year or not, we talk more or less about politics. Uh, we have had tremendous fights. <laughs> we have walked out on each other when arguing about political issues like you imagine happens within people's families even. But the idea that he and I would cease to be friends because he has a different political view seems nuts to me. 
you know, if I have to answer the second part of the question, which is what impact has that friendship had on me and my beliefs? Well, in many instances, it not had much of an effect because I believe what I believe and I believe that my view is correct and his view is incorrect. On other occasions, though, it's helped me hone and redefine my views. It's also, by the way, since it's been decades long that we've been in this friendship, I've learned a little bit of how to navigate friendship and politics and to understand when it's appropriate to have those discussions and when it's appropriate to maybe leave them aside, which is a thing I think a lot of families have to deal with also at the dinner table or at holiday time, especially maybe Thanksgiving, and figure out ways to have these disagreements while still respecting the person as a father or a husband or a friend or a professional. And I think that's good. So overall, I feel that my life and my beliefs and my views on the world have been enhanced by, not undermined by, but enhanced by my friendship with people like Viet. And this is a point that's missing from some of this discussion. I like to think also that over decades of friendship, I have sometimes convinced Viet that he's wrong about something and caused him to change his view or refine his position. It's a two-way street. It's not just about your changing your view, but your being in a position given the respect that comes with friendship, to change other people's minds as opposed to having them you know, shut in their own world. So look, I think if you have decided in life not to be friends with people who don't agree with you on critical issues, I think that's a loss. I think it's a loss for you. I think it's a loss for the country. But that's your choice. But I would also say, I don't understand the people who would take that away from other people. I think diversity of opinion is important and learning how to talk to people while also respecting them and disagreeing with them is also important. So talk to someone you disagree with from time to time. And maybe, maybe think about being their friend. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Anand Girdardas. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. You can tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Aaron Dalton. And the Cafe team is Carla Pirini, Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, David Kurlander, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is supported by Simply Safe. Simply Safe makes home security easy with no contract, hidden fees, or fine print. And for just $15 a month, you get 24/7 professional monitoring throughout your home. Simply Safe uses their revolutionary video verification technology to visually confirm break-ins when they happen which allows police to get to you 3.5 times faster. Visit simplysafe.com/preet and you'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. That's simplysafe.com/preet. simplysafe.com/preet.